Welcome to the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Hello, folks. Um, I'm back at the microphone, and with me again is Andreas Jenke. Andreas Jenke, you've picked out three, well, not three papers, you picked out two papers two and one and issue of discussion. Two and Two one-half papers, let's call it that. Two letters to the editor about, a, about an SBGAN position paper that was recently published. Let's start with the work from Turkey. Um, who was involved in that? Bekmez et al. That was, the title is Antenatal Neuroprotective Magnesium Sulfate. How much is too much? And... How do we tell what too much is? Why did you pick this study? Well, first of all, um, you might not know, but um, apart from being a pediatric gastroenterologist, I'm also a neonatologist. And when I saw this um, topic, I got very interested because the magnesium issue on neuroprotection is under debate for the last 20 years, so two decades now. So there are a lot of people in favor, but also another similar large group um, who's absolutely not convinced that antenatal magnesium has any beneficial effects for the premature Wait infants. a minute. I, I, I thought that that battle was largely settled, that, that a number of studies have shown that it does have a neuroprotective effect and that the question is not so much whether there is one as to... In, but instead, whether side effects in terms of problems with postnatal adaptation, things like bronchopulmonary dysplasia, necrotizing enterocolitis, is the game worth the candle? Are we losing more with them than we're gaining with neuroprotection? Have I got that wrong? Well, um, not completely, but... Um, oh, I, I do then, okay. Well, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I mean, of course, there are several large studies which um, demonstrated a protective effect. The most well-renowned study 15 years ago, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, more than 2,000 premature infants included. But there have been a lot of smaller studies or sometimes even similar large studies published since then. And one of the most recent reviews could not find a beneficial effect. Uh -huh. So, and also no, no negative effect. So at the moment, it's still under debate. And one mm -hmm. question, of course, is, is it dependent on the dose? Because uh -huh. in the study, in the, in the very old studies um, from 2003 and 2008, it was a insane dose like six gram of magnesium and then two gram every hour for 24 hours um, so this was quite a substantial number and i would like to point out that in the study published in the new england journal of medicine in 2008 the primary outcome so a significant difference in cerebral palsy at the age of two was mm -hmm. not met so there was no difference only in the SAP analysis, they found that there was a less less severe um, cerebral palsy in the magnesium group. So it was 
kind of minor minor effect. So the primary goal was not met. So it was not a reduction in CP, but just at best a decrease in severity. And so it it's still under debate. Right. So, but how, but how did how did the side effects how did the side effects come to the fore? The side effects that I tried to mention a little while ago. Well, the side effects mainly high doses of magnesium in the premature infants decreases the muscle tone, so and also the blood pressure. So, so less so, gut contractility. Yes. So this is one of one major concern. So you get something like hemodynamic issues in the first days of life, mm-hmm. and you have increased problems with the feeding intolerance because it also makes some kind of intestinal par- paralysis. I would say. Uh huh. Uh huh. So and I've I've experienced that in in the NICU quite quite often. To be honest, and usually in um, patients that have been born to mothers with a preeclampsia, um, receiving high dose of magnesium to control the blood pressure and uh, to stabilize the pregnancy. But so, these authors claim these authors claim that eclampsia was not an issue in their patient population. Yeah, well, that's good f- that you it's mentioned that. It's a lovely that. claim. So maybe Is it we- borne out. Yeah, let's move to the paper. So first of all, okay. I think, I mean, it's they they claim it's a prospective observational study, uh-huh. um, and they included quite a substantial number of premature infants, close to six hundred, right. and three hundred received antenatal magnesium, and the others didn't. So, and that what they found is that which is not surprising that the amount of magnesium given antenatally correlates with the magnesium levels measured in the premature infant. So obviously magnesium passes the placenta. Not and if you give more, then more hangs yeah. around. Okay. So, okay, so not a surprising result. But then from my perspective, here comes the major issue. In the methods section, they claim that pregnant women diagnosed with preeclampsia were given the same magnesium regimen for a neuroprotective purpose only. Mm-hmm. So that means that the standard treatment or one kind of standard treatment for preeclampsia is magnesium treatment or infusion. Right. Right. So, but they didn't do it. So let us believe that this is the case. But mm-hmm. now let us look at the epidemiological data. If we look at the epidemiological data, we see quite quickly that the group with the high magnesium levels with the antenatal magnesium infusion are more prone to interuterine growth retardation, so being small for gestational age, which mm-hmm. is very, very typical for preeclampsia intrauterine growth retardation and more complications. Yeah, so so let let's move to that um, in a in a second. In a moment, sorry. Okay. So so um, but first of all, I mean it's very hard for me to believe that the obstetrician stick to the protocol in this study and did not give magnesium due to preeclampsia. At least shame on you. Are well, you bad mouth? Shame on you. At least the difference in the epidemiological data suggests... It does smell like a clamps treatment, doesn't it? Yeah, just a little. But, oh, okay. 
let's move to what you just mentioned. They found that in the group with a higher magnesium level and the antenatal exposure of magnesium, there's a higher incidence of bronchopulmonary dysplasia and a higher incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis. Mm -hmm. So, but on the other hand, we know that necrotizing enterocolitis as well as bronchopulmonary dysplasia are more common in babies with intrauterine growth restriction and SGA. Which are both known complications of placental problems and preeclampsia. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. it might be that all the results we see here are not related to the magnesium, but are just the background risk of bronchopulmonary dysplasia and necrotizing enterocolitis due to being small for gestational age. Whoa. So from my perspective, we cannot draw any conclusions out of this study, except that if we give magnesium antenatally mm -hmm. in a high dose to the mother, we will find it later on in the baby. Well, it's good to have that nailed down, I must say. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, and we and we thought there was so much content there. All right, let's move on to our two little skirmishes at the side of a great battle. Sometimes it's those little encounters that make the most interesting part of reading historical of reading historical studies. And what were these skirmishes about? Yeah, well, I personally always like to read the letters. And um, this time I was a little bit confused, to be honest. So when I was reading the letter, which was obviously written by um, language and speech therapists in behalf of premature infants and oral feeding. So Let me make all, this a little clearer. I neglected to say that this is on the neonatal response to uh, the RCLST neonatal CEN response to SBGAN preterm enteral nutrition position paper and regarding issues of oral feeding on CPAP. Yes, okay. absolutely correct. So first of all, I, I didn't understand what the issue was that then eventually when I, when I went through the letter, I realized that it's about oral, giving oral feeding, so just oral and not tube feeding, uh -huh. to babies um, that are still on respiratory support with a CPAP or high flow nasal cannula. But there's a timeline for that, it's something like 32 weeks, am I right? Yeah, well, at the least in many units it is. So uh -huh. because uh -huh. um, many basic studies from the 70s, 80s and 90s suggest that nutritive swallowing only starts at 32 weeks of gestational age, maybe uh -huh. a little bit earlier. So this is also my personal experience. Um, sometimes you have a 31 weeker or 30 weeker who's without um, CPAP and um, respiratory support and you give them something to swallow. It's not very efficient. I mean, it's maybe one mil or two mils mm -hmm. every six hours. So it's very uncoordinated, even uh -huh. though in our unit we use or we include the speech and language therapists quite early. 
And that, of course, puts the baby at increased risk of aspiration and other complications. Yeah, if it's on CPAP and you challenge the baby's prior maturity of the swallowing system, of course, there is the risk that some milk drops into the respiratory system. But to be honest, this is exactly what the ASPGAN guideline or position paper says. So be very careful in children or premature infants below the age of 32 uh, weeks of gestational age. And even afterwards, be careful and consider what happens if they're, they're still on, on a respiratory support in any way. So actually there is no real discern or, be, 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 or debate between these positions. So basically I just want to reassure all the readers that what's written in this position paper is very well founded and it's not uh, suggesting that you should start giving oral feeding to a very premature infant below 30 weeks of gestational age on respiratory support. Just want I must to say, point that out. I must say that the response from the, uh, from the coalition that wrote the position paper, put it together, sounded a little bit miffed as in, hey, we said that, here are large blocks of text from our paper that says, hey, we're taking that into account. But you know, it all depends on whose ox is Gordon. If you're a speech and language person, then you may think they just didn't give us enough airtime. But it's Possibly. been brought out, it's been brought out, the airtime is now theirs, and it's time to move on, saying thank you to everybody, to the third article of the session. That's from Boston Children's Hospital. It has to do with the value of testing poop, <laughs> our favorite subject, testing poop for DNA of H. pylori in order to look at antibiotic sensitivities. This confused the heck out of me because I lack a basic fund of knowledge. I'm the first to admit it. But I didn't know what the time schedule is, the time schedule, excuse me, Mr. Uh, middle of the Atlantic, the schedule schedule was or is for identifying sensitivities using traditional methods in endoscopically obtained samples that contain H. pylori. And it takes forever. Andreas, for the other people, for anybody else out there who doesn't know the timetable, what are the issues here relating to getting the results fast? So the issue is that if you take a biopsy specimen from the gastric mucosa, mm -hmm. it usually takes three, in most cases, four to five weeks until you have a final results on the antimicrobial susceptibility of the bug. So imagine you have a patient already complaining for six months My tummy about hurts. abdominal pain mm -hmm. and also parents very concerned. You do the endoscopy and then you say, well, it's H. pyloric gastritis, but you need to wait for another month before I can tell you what kind of medications or drugs I give you. And I think this is also one major problem of the emerging antimicrobial resistance because many uh -huh. physicians under the pressure of the parents and seeing the suffering of the kid just give any kind of combination. So they just decide 
it's a belly decision whether they go for the French triple or the Italian triple treatment in Sherlock. We just we're just going to go in there and clear everything out, and then it's the Albigensian approach: kill them all and let God sort them out. We, <laughs> nicely said. Okay. Um, so so this is one issue, uh-huh. and then the other issue is that some way the paper suggests that it might be possible to just take the poop sample, at least mm-hmm. I understand the paper or the the message between the lines in some way yeah. um, um, in, in this direction. So you take the poop sample and the poop is positive for H. pylori. And then you right. say, well, it's nice. I do an NGS on an antimicrobial resistance and I start treating just based on the poop sample. But this is a problem mm-hmm. because of the high prevalence of H. pylori infection in the European General. countries or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. So because the sensitivity and the specificity of the um, poop testing is 90 to at best 95 percent. If you consider that having an, in, in mind a high prevalence of eight to nine percent, then the negative predictive value of this test is quite good. So if you're negative on the poop test, so you can 99 percent be sure that you do not have H. pylori. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you're positive, you only have H. pylori in a percentage between 50 and 65%. And that's what makes endoscopy and biopsy and identification of H. pylori, by histopathologic means at least, the gold standard. At the moment, yes, this is the official recommendation. So if you have a positive test, you need to perform an endoscopy. And this is actually also what what, what these guys experienced. So they, they performed the endoscopy due to clinical symptoms and um, some screening testing. And 35% of the patients positive in the screening turned out to have no H. pylori. Okay. So they basically underscore the problem of the poop testing. But what is good from my perspective is that they were able using the NGS testing Mm -hmm. for identifying within three days the correct antimicrobial susceptibility. Three days, that's a heck of a lot better than five, six weeks. Absolutely. So comparing, yes, three days, whether it's a month or even a little bit more than a month, uh, this would speed up the process and would make an early therapy more reliable. So I think there is a lot good in this study, mm-hmm. but it's not, from my perspective as a reader, not very well pointed out. I would like to have a fast testing for antimicrobial resistance, and this technique has the possibility to just provide that. So this is good. Let's see if it can be duplicated by other researchers. That was, again, Helicobacter pylori antimicrobial resistance using next-generation sequencing in stool samples in a pediatric population from Bonilla et al. with Athos Busfaros as the senior author. Andreas, it's that time. 
It's that time not just for this podcast, but almost that time for us to say goodbye. <laughs> it's been great working with you, and I'm glad we have another session coming up, but that session is going to be a sort of passing the baton. We're going to be... Yeah, you will meet we're, the, we're, yeah, we're going to, the, I, I don't know, the we'll new be, guy on the, yeah. on the microphone. Well, he's not totally new. He's been here before, Jake yeah. Mann. Jake yeah. Mann. A different accent, though. There is that. Adjust your ears, people. But um, I don't know if we can manage this by Zoom, but I think there should be cake. Really, there should be cake. Shouldn't there be cake? Well, cake or maybe a bottle of wine. Whatever okay. you prefer. Okay. In that event, then, um, thank you all for listening. Lovely to have you here as our audience, as always. And... Andreas, um, here's a big shoulder punch saying I'm going to miss you, big guy. Thanks. And see you once again in December. December it'll be. Bye-bye.